You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Contraception, one of the most progressive and changing fields of women's health. As new contraceptive options and the research behind them are continually introduced, what do we, the physicians, need to know to stay up to date? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Renee Matthews, your host, and with me today is Dr. Anita Nelson. Dr. Anita Nelson is a professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the David Geffen School of Medicine at the University of California, Los Angeles. She serves as chief of the women's health care programs, including the health care clinic and the nurse practitioner program for women's health at the Los Angeles Biomedical Research Institute at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. She is also the medical director for the research division of the California Family Health Council. Dr. Nelson, welcome to our program. Thank you, Dr. Matthews. It's a pleasure to be here today. Thank you. Dr. Nelson, there's so many oral contraceptives out there nowadays. We've heard about Plan B. Could you tell us more about Plan B? Plan B is a wonderful device as a backup method for women for whom Plan A didn't work, the condom broke, the diaphragm got dislodged, the pill got forgotten, or maybe passion overwhelmed reason or judgment. This gives a woman a second chance to keep from getting pregnant. Patients don't always understand the name, but I think as practitioners, and we certainly do appreciate having that second level of protection for women. I think some of the controversy that has arisen around Plan B is around its mechanisms of action. And I think the latest research that we have demonstrating that it works only if taken before ovulation, that it blocks ovulation, that it does not work if it's taken after ovulation. We get the same number of pregnancies as we would anticipate if it's taken after ovulation. can make people feel a little bit more comfortable in prescribing this much more liberally. We're just not going to make the contribution to pregnancy protection as a backup unless people feel that they have ready access to it and, and really take it as early as possible. So advanced prescription. In, the, in our clinics here, just about everybody goes home with a plan B, except maybe my IUD users and my implantant users, because we know that pills get forgotten and condoms sometimes get neglected or quite frequently get neglected. So just ready access to plan B will be really quite wonderful. Off-label, just to let you know, the research has shown us that instead of following labeling instructions where you take one tablet now and one tablet in 12 hours, the better way to do it is both tablets now. It doesn't seem to increase the side effects, and women seem to be able to use it uh, a lot more successfully with a single dose. Remember that it only has progestin in it so that there are no major clinical contraindications, no medical contraindications unless a woman has breast cancer right now. So it's a very safe and effective method, and hopefully we'll get a lot more broad-spread attention and prescribing now that we have mechanisms of action a little bit better understood. Actually, because so many people wanted to compare Plan B to some sort of abortion pill. Yeah. And whether it's technically an abortion, I mean, disrupting an established pregnancy, which is the technical definition, or if it worked after fertilization, some patients would be uh, uncomfortable, and I, we respect their, their views, but I'd hate for them not to be able to use an effective method because it was misunderstood. This is clearly a contraceptive. It's not working after fertilization. But it's intriguing. In the study that, that looked at this mechanism of action, they found that only 23% of the women who were at risk for pregnancy by way of measuring their progesterone levels, their E2, and their FS, uh, their LH levels. Only 23% of those women knew that they were at risk. 
most of them thought that they'd already passed the ovulatory part of this, this cycle. So it's one of those, ooh, where am I type of things. And that should encourage us to have women use Plan B whenever they have unprotected intercourse, not try to second guess where they are in their cycle. Mm, definitely. Now, you spoke about Implanon and IUD. IUD has been around for a long time. Let's talk about Implanon and what, what exact is this available for American women now? You're absolutely right. We got the copper T380A in 1988, and yet it is the best method of birth control in terms of efficacy, and it's used by the least number of women. We had the introduction in 2001 of the levonorgestrel IUS that had the benefit not only of providing uh, contraception that was equivalent to sterilization and is reversible, but also helps as a treatment for menorrhagia. So you hear these gold standards, and yet people just aren't using them. So I'd really like folks to think again. Uh, it's so silly that you know it's second tier for many places, and to realize that there are programs available to uh, make it more cost-effective for patients to use. Now, if I were an insurance company, I, I probably would recommend withdrawal as a method because it doesn't cost anything, and with all the churning in the membership, the pregnancies that occur, you know, aren't the ones I'm going to pay for. But that's one of the reasons we have the Contraceptive Equity Act out there to make sure that women get access to contraception as well as men getting, con- you know, access to Viagra. Now, explain to me what's Implanon. Implanon is a single rod implant that is placed in the inner aspect of a woman's arm, the upper arm. It takes one minute to put it in. That's washing it off, putting in the anesthetic, and sliding this little implant in in a preloaded. Uh, almost like a syringe type of device. So it's very easy to use. It takes two minutes on average to take out. It's different than the Norplant with its six implants that were a little bit more complicated, six implants to put in, and then you needed some specialized training to really be facile in removing all six of them. This implant is a lot more rigid so that it can be felt easily under the skin. It doesn't have to be visible. But it is rigid, so if you push down on one end, the other will poke itself up, you know, and let you know where you need to go grasp it to get it out. It is amazingly effective in every single clinical trial around the world. Not a single woman has gotten pregnant with it in place. In the United States, they did count the six pregnancies that occurred within two weeks of removal (laughs) of the device against a failure. You and I might think, gee whiz, that's rapid return to fertility. But the FDA has new rules that anything that occurs two weeks after she stops using it counts against it. But so very rapid return to fertility. And this device, this implant, is a designer implant. It gives you hormone levels that are designed to suppress ovulation. In clinical trials where they did ultrasound studies and they looked at progesterone, they looked at FSLH levels, all of those types of things, not a single woman had any evidence of ovulation for 30 months. And between 30 months and the 36 months that it's approved for, 3% of women had any ovulation. And then the cervical mucus being the Berlin Wall, not letting the sperm up, acted as a contraceptive. So if I had a patient who was concerned about mechanisms of action, this would be one that would be really clear. You know, you keep the sperm out and the eggs are corralled, there will not be fertilization. There are profound changes in the endometrium, but we need to talk to patients about that in terms of the bleeding patterns you may have. This is a progestin-only method, so virtually every woman on the face of the earth except women who've had recent breast cancer are candidates for it. Again, very important for us for some really ill women who need very effective contraception. This will be a very easy thing to offer her, very convenient. But every woman needs to know 
The bleeding pattern while she's using it is something we characterize as unpredictably unpredictable. Now, I sent that in in a reviewer in an article recently, sent back and said that that was redundant, but that's the point. (laughs) For sure, for sure. I'm from California. Uh, the, The bleeding, she has to understand she may have a couple of months of scheduled bleeding every month. She may have some intermenstrual bleeding. She may go a couple of months without having any spotting or bleeding and then, you know, there's no cycle, nothing like Depo-Provera where you're aiming for the amenorrhea or with Norplant where women generally got a, a return to normal predictable bleeding patterns. This is just unpredictable. It's amazing. If you look at the clinical trials, less than 10% of women actually stopped using it for this reason. But I think it's because they were told up front about it. Uh, yeah. You'll weed out the women who might not like it. You won't have, you know, people who felt violated that you didn't tell them that this was possible. Now, the introduction of this implant is being slow and controlled. They don't want to have, as we did with Norplant, 800,000 women getting it in the first 18 months. And then we get this tsunami of backlash. They really want the folks who are placing it to know how to counsel women. They want them to be superbly trained in insertion and removal. They're setting up regional centers. If you run into trouble with a patient so that you have some place, you can send them confidently where they'll have ultrasound, visualization, and skills, all of that type of stuff. They're, they're setting these up all around the country. So I think it'll be a little more of a cocoon for people who are doing this. As I'm looking at the top tier efficacy methods that are out there, the IUDs and the implants, I can see that folks who may not feel comfortable being in the uterus to place IUDs might feel a lot more comfortable sliding a little implant in in a one-minute procedure. So I can see that this will really broaden access to extraordinarily effective reversible contraception. You're listening to Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Renee Matthews, and I'm speaking with Dr. Anita Nelson, and we are discussing women's contraception. Dr. Nelson, you were mentioning about the amenorrhea that some people will experience with these different types of birth control, but there's also other causes of amenorrhea. There's primary amenorrhea and secondary. Could you first tell us some of the causes for primary amenorrhea? Well, with primary amenorrhea, you have to think about two things. The easiest way to approach a workup on that is ask yourself, does she have uterus and does she have breasts? And if you do the yes, 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 no, no, yes, no, no, in each of those, you can divide it up into very manageable sort of quadrants. The woman who doesn't have any breasts has obviously not seen estrogen. So you need to be thinking, why isn't she making estrogen? And you think they're about either a primary hypothalamic pituitary failure or ovarian failure. Uh, Turner syndrome, for instance, might give you this where she runs out of follicles before she reaches puberty. Or if you're thinking about the woman who has breast development, obviously she's seen estrogen, but she doesn't have a uterus. You might think there about a testicular feminization where her gonads are really testicles, but she cannot respond to the testosterone and converts it to estrogen and gets very buxom, but no, no axillary hair or pubic hair and, and of course, no menses because she doesn't have a uterus. The most common that we get is that she has breast development and she has a uterus. And for those women, the rulings, the reasons that they fail to have menarche is that the same as we get for secondary amenorrhea, except there are a couple of little structural things. For instance, you may think of an imperforate hymen or a transverse septum in the vagina where she, she may have hematocolposis building up and she's menstruating, but the, the flow isn't able to extrude. So there's some very nice little protocols. There are also congenital absence of a uterus. But if you kind of methodically go through 
the the four little quadrants, it makes it a lot easier uh, to think about what the possibilities are. And then secondary amenorrhea. Well, for secondary amenorrhea, you have to think about prolactin. You think about drug-drug interactions, don't you? Because there's certainly a fair number of drugs, particularly if we're talking about antipsychotic medications that can interrupt the body with dopamine and interfere with prolactin control, those types of things that can cause amenorrhea. Stress, we hear a fair amount about stress causing it, but that's really almost a diagnosis of exclusion. You have to look to see whether she can respond to the estrogen. A very nice way to work this up is from the, instead of the top down, we work from the bottom up. You can give her a progestin challenge and see if she has a withdrawal bleed, and if she does, then that kind of lets you know that her body has seen estrogen and her uterine cavity can respond to it. And then you ask yourself, why isn't she making progesterone? Or if she doesn't respond, then you ask, well, she hasn't seen estrogen. You evaluate the endometrial cavity by giving her estrogen and then following it with progestin and seeing if she can respond. If she doesn't, then she may have something like an Asherman's or she's got scarring of the endometrium. I want to thank Dr. Anita Nelson, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing current issues in women's health. I am Dr. Renee Matthews, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.